Comic books were originally created as a cheap, easy medium to separate children from their pocket change, and one of the most effective ways to do this was through the realm of the adolescent power fantasy. I talked about this a bit with uh, in my video for uh, Casino Royale and how it applies to the James Bond franchise in general, but in terms of uh, comic books, and specifically superhero comic books, nobody really gives much mind to meek, mild-mannered, and cowardly Clark Kent, and oh boy, would the beautiful Lois Lane change her tune if she found out that he was actually the powerful and heroic Superman. <laughs> and many a small, nerdy child would project themselves onto Superman and live vicariously through his accomplishments. And while I cited Superman as the first example because he's the patient zero for the superhero comics phenomenon, I'd say that this whole adolescent power fantasy thing is epitomized by Heavy Metal, the long-running uh, sci-fi fantasy anthology comic that was launched in the 1970s. Peak of Heavy Metal's relevance uh, was in its feature film adaptation, which came out in 1981. I am going to discuss this film in depth and break down what it is, what it's about, what went into it, and what came out of it. My name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive. And it's me again, Rachel, the professional co-host. Yes, and... Not only is this your first time seeing Heavy Metal, we just finished it like 15 minutes ago, yeah. not even. <laughs> you hadn't even heard of it. You had no idea what yeah, you were getting into. I had into. no idea what this was, and I did not read Ryan's notes before we started watching the movie. I was completely like, wow, oh my god. Yeah, you're still a little shell-shocked. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking of all of the things I'm, I'm going to say about this experience. Like, like, I'm looking at you, and you're basically Krusty the Clown, what the hell is that? Yeah, um, that's pretty accurate. I mean, I'm, like, a huge sci-fi fan, you know, I was raised on Star Trek, and I do, you know, read and watch, like, a lot of anthology things, and I'm surprised I've never heard of this before. I didn't yeah. even know it was animated until you put in the DVD. <laughs> you're like, oh, are there cartoon bits in this? And you're like, the whole movie's a cartoon bit. This is going to be interesting. You know nothing about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I years ago, I went and watched Roger Waters perform The Wall completely blind. That was an experience. Yeah, that's some yikes. Yeah, I think my dad thought I would enjoy it more if I didn't know what was coming. I have to say... He was wrong. I probably should have known about what I was going into. <laughs> All right, before we get started into the film itself, I want to give some contextual background to this. Most of the um, think pieces and podcast episodes and YouTube video essays I've seen about heavy metal um, don't actually go into where it came from because especially to an american audience this film is like a hard splash of cold water in your face there's just no precedent for this in american animation and even by anime standards it's weird yeah and i'm really surprised when i saw who was involved in making this it seems like very out of character okay so this is relevant but i have to start talking about the history of french comic books now, the earliest French comics were, unsurprisingly, American imports, although homegrown material came up pretty fast. Uh, Hergé's famous 1010 strip started in 1929. During the Nazi occupation during World War II, uh, American comic imports were banned by the Nazis. Uh, however, they did come back for a bit. However, if you were up on your comic book history, you already know that in the mid-1950s, 1954 specifically, Frederick Wortham published Seduction of the Innocent, which is an indictment of comic books saying that they influenced young people into committing crimes. Comics in the 50s are basically like the video games of the rap music of the day. They were a good whipping boy. This resulted in Senate hearings headed by uh, Senator Kefauver, who is more famous for cracking down on organized crime. Now, the titles that they targeted were uh, anthology books like Crime Does Not Pay and Tales from the Crypt, an anthology horror book. Ooh, I love me some Tales from the Crypt. I mean, they were um, free on Comicsology around two years ago, and I just read them all. <laughs> no meaningful legislation came about, but the industry itself adopted a stringent self-censorship code known as the Comics Code Authority, which ran for the next 50 years or so. Ooh, I hate censorship. 
books like Crime Does Not Pay and Tales from the Crypt were driven into bankruptcy, but a couple of people escaped Comics Code scrutiny by converting to magazine-sized format uh, that published black and white comics, the most famous example being Mad Magazine, the last bastion of the uh, EC empire that launched Tales from the Crypt. But about 10 years after the uh, pr- publication of Seduction of the Innocent, Warren Publishing, who was responsible for famous monsters of Filmland, put out a couple of uh, Tales from the Crypt knockoffs known as Creepy Eerie and eventually uh, Vampirella, which, while they're fairly tame by heavy metal standards, they did push more boundaries. There's a, they were a little sexier and a little more violent than what you got from Spider-Man. Yeah, and some of the, you know, Tales from the Crypt stories, they have pretty gruesome endings. Meanwhile, uh, in France, there was similar legislation targeted against American comic books for causing juvenile delinquency, but something actually came from it, and for a while, American comics were banned in France, which meant that the homegrown artists in the background started becoming more important, and for the next few decades, French comics started growing independently of American influence. The most prominent example of this was the anthology Pilot, which ran from 1959 to 1989. It's uh, kind of similar to Shonen Jump, where it would have a bun- it would just a, a magazine that packaged various um, serialized short stories that were later collected in uh, graphic novels, which uh, the French call albums. A lot of the most iconic French comic books were launched in Pilot, most notably uh, Asteri, Lukey Luke, and Valerian and Laureline. Uh, Valerian got a film adaptation a couple of years ago. One of the most prominent and the most relevant to heavy metal is Blueberry, which was a uh, Western starring sort of this anti-heroic outlaw type. It was created by uh, Jean-Michel Charlier and uh, the artist uh, Jean Girard. And to this day in France, Blueberry is the most famous thing that Girard did, but uh, North American audiences know him best for the stuff that Jean Girard produced under the nom de guerre of Moebius. That is what he signed his science fiction to fantasy work. He launched this in the early 1960s after being influenced by his friend and occasional collaborator, the filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky. He introduced Gerard to shamanism and tarot reading, and this resulted in the sci-fi fantasy stories that had a sort of uh, surrealistic, dreamlike, new age philosophical perspective. And in 1974, he left P-Law finally. Uh, there were a lot of reasons, some of them financial, but it was mostly because he wanted to focus more on his Moebius alter ego. And the next year, he founded a uh, science fiction uh, fantasy uh, anthology called Metal Roland, which translates literally to Screaming Metal or sometimes Howling Metal. Uh, it was published in the United States by National Lampoon. They changed the name to Heavy Metal. It makes, that, it makes more sense, I think, calling it Heavy Metal. Yeah, Metal Huron was a fairly short-lived anthology, although it was massively influential on French comic books in general, but the American version was much more successful. It is still running to this day. Oh, shit. I should that out. That's awesome. Not only did all of the greats of European comics uh, contribute to heavy metal because, you know, they paid their artists more and they had great production values, beautiful color, and they let them do whatever they want, own their creations after they were done. Oh, that's really nice. So a lot of American people who were stifled under the uh, comics code that I mentioned earlier, such as Richard Corbin and Bernie Wrightson, who both worked on the film, came upon uh, heavy metal and uh, contributed some work to that. All them kinky Europeans and their lack of censorship. I'm being very sarcastic in case anyone can't tell. (laughs) After uh, National Lampoon became a big wheel in comedy films, thanks to Animal House and Vacation, they decided, hey, this other thing that we're publishing, Heavy Metal, why don't we turn that into a movie? So they contacted Ivan Reitman, who had just directed Animal House for them, and he produced the film. And so let's actually talk about the plot of this thing, such as it is. Yes, like, what plot? (laughs) It's very, very loose. There is a framing device, which is more like the glowing ball of evil lectures a freaked out little girl. (laughs) All right, it opens with a sequence called Soft Landing, in which an astronaut in a Corvette comes out of a space shuttle and lands in a desert canyon on Earth while Radar Rider by Riggs is playing. And uh, this is done through rotoscoping. There's a lot of rotoscoping. Oh, yeah, so much rotoscoping. It looks pretty cool, although sometimes it's kind of like, oh, boy, we're really here in the uncanny valley, aren't we? Yeah, we'll be talking about that a bit more when we get to the technical aspects of this. The next sequence is uh, called Grimaldi, because that's apparently the astronaut's name. Oh. Yeah, he greets his daughter at a mansion and shows her this green orb that he found in outer space, and it instantly melts him. 
Yeah, I, I think he, he's not a very smart scientist or astronaut. Yeah, the orb is alive, by the way. It's called the Lochnar, and it introduces itself <laughs> as the sum of all evils. And he begins telling this frightened little girl stories about how it has corrupted individuals and societies throughout time and space. Yeah, it, it's a very chatty MacGuffin, and I think he also kind of falls into the whole, why don't you just shoot her trap? He's like, I'm going to pin this little girl to the wall, and I'm just going to tell her some very age-inappropriate stories with lots of boobs and then explode upon myself at the end. It's surprising it took us like 12 minutes to get to boobs. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get on my sandbox here. I am fine with gratuitous boobs as long as there's gratuitous dick. I want more male frontal nudity in things. Yeah, this is Astonishing lack of penis. Yeah, I mean, there is, but it's like, eh, you know, we're going to joke about people having big dicks, but do we get to see them? No. Yeah, the first of the stories that our Crypt Keeper Orb of Doom tells us. He does not have the personality or the interestingness of the Crypt Keeper at all. Well, the Crypt Keeper is a high bar to vault over. <laughs> Anyways, this story is called Harry Canyon. It is very loosely based on The Long Tomorrow, written by Dan O'Bannon, who wrote a couple of other sequences in this film, and drawn by Morbius. The Long Tomorrow was cited by William Gibson as an influence on Neuromancer, often cited as the beginning of the cyberpunk genre. Okay. Yeah, lots of other people have cited that Harry Canyon is a big influence on the fifth element. You know, cab driver who stumbles across a beautiful woman. Beautiful red-headed woman. Yeah, also, uh, Moivius, who drew The Long Tomorrow, contributed character designs and conceptual arts of the fifth element. That does not surprise me in the slightest, but I think that Corbin Dallas is a much better character <laughs> than Harry Canyon. And uh, Moivius also contributed concept art to Alien. Ridley Scott didn't use him on Blade Runner, but he apparently had a stack of heavy metals lying around while he was working on Blade Runner. Okay, yeah, I believe it. Makes sense. I mean, it has, like, the New York in the 70s, but it's really the future level of crappiness. And watching it, it takes place in 2031. You and I are going to blink, and it's suddenly going to be 2031. Yeah, it definitely has that cyberpunk vibe of low, trashy culture, but there's high-tech gizmos flying around everywhere. Yeah, including, like, a little robot that gives voicemails to people, basically. Uh, yes, it takes place in dystopian New York in 2031 and, and centers on the titular cab driver. He narrates his life in sort of a film noir patois. Oh, yeah, and he also, he hates illegal aliens who are literally illegal aliens. So it just goes to show you that some things just never change, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, the story gets in motion when he stumbles across this beautiful woman who's fleeing from a gangster named Rudnick who had killed her father. His father was an archaeologist who had stumbled across the Loch Ness. Yeah, and Rodnick, he looks like badly reheated ham. Yeah, he's apparently from Venus or something. Uh, anyways, <laughs> after Harry and the woman get away, they have sex. Of course they do. She's like, Harry, can I sleep with you? And then she just takes off her shirt and she's got big bouncy boobs and no bra. <laughs> well, boobs do not obey the forces of gravity in the heavy metal universe. She doesn't need a bra. Uh, well, I mean, Carrie Fisher was totally right to make fun of George Lucas for telling her that there's no underwear in space. Anyways, after being threatened by a couple of people after his interesting night with the lady, Rudnick contacts the lady and offers to buy the Lochner offer, which is weird because he's just trying to kill her and steal it earlier. She decides to get Harry to accompany her as, you know, sort of a protective escort in exchange for half of the proceeds. Yeah, he has a, a what is it? His dashboard is full of guns and hand grenades. He has a little foot pedal thing that disintegrates people who try to mug him in the back seat. I really like that. That was probably my favorite little thing in that this story. It's just, oh, well, I've got another asshole in the back of my car. Yoink. The exchange goes off without a hitch. Uh, Rudnick takes the orb out and that melts him. Yeah, I'm like, I oh, didn't see that coming now, did you there, buddy? Yeah, the woman decides that she's going to stiff Harry out of his half of the dough and run away with the money on her own. Uh, Harry then uses the aforementioned uh, foot pedal disintegrator beam to dispatch her, and then he drives off with the money. End of story. Yeah, I mean, I kind of figured it was going to have, like, a film noir unhappy ending and i was like wow she had a rapid turnaround i'm like i guess she wasn't impressed with his bed performance <laughs>
Well, I mean, it was for like what three hundred thousand space bucks. I don't know what the exchange rate is, but apparently it's a lot of money. Now, like, like I said, that line from Spaceballs, like, we're not doing this for the money. We're doing this for a shitload of money. All right, our next sequence is called Den, and boy, I'm sure you have feelings about it. <laughs> okay, this one is just a big pile of weird. It's got John Candy in, which is great because I love John Candy, <laughs> but. Boy, was it weird. All right, it's based on the comic of the same name by Richard Corbin, who had started out in uh, Creepy and Eerie and Vampirella. He wrote the script for the segment. Corbin is an interesting artist because he sort of has that vibe of underground cartoonists like Robert Crumb and the like. But I was kind of getting that vibe from a lot of the segments. Yeah, he's, he's polished enough to you know, make it ride in the more mainstream environments. He draws people to be a little simian, and most people say... A little simian? You mean a lot simian. Uh, yeah, I mean, his, his characters are even more simian in the stuff that he drew rather than the animators copying what he did. And uh, a lot of people cite Den as the most sophomoric thing he ever worked on, which, yeah. Anyways, it starts out with this nerdy teen who is voiced by John Candy who finds a green meteor and adds it to his rock collection. However, when he's trying to harness lightning for an amateur electricity experiment, it whisks him away to the sword and sorcery fantasy realm. Where everyone's naked. And it transforms him into a huge, nude, bald, and muscular warrior named Den. The second you see him, he looks down at his junk off screen and goes, Mmm, big. <laughs> and he's like, I can't go run around with my dork out in, the, in like his John Candy voice. Yeah, it should be noted that John Candy is both the narrator and the warrior, and yeah. um, his narration keeps with, like, a slightly more nasally version of his normal voice, but when he's dead, he does, like, this deep, dulcet tone, I'm a big, tough guy, but I'm still John Candy. Uh. Hey, personally, I think <laughs> just the part where Dan looks down at his penis and goes, mm, big, <laughs> just encapsulates this entire film. Yeah! I know, and, and guess, and as I said earlier, you, you get like a brief flash of like the teenager John Candy self falling and you see his dick in a few frames, but you do not get to see his new big dick, but we get to see lots of boobs here, and this is not equality. Speaking of which, oh my god, Dan notices that a Cthulhu cult are about to sacrifice a very busty young woman to their Lovecraftian god. He rescues her, Ultar, <laughs> Ultar, something Ultar, like that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she decides that she doesn't have anything specifically to reward him, but if anything about her pleases his senses, take of it. I know. I was like, all right, we're going this way, aren't we? And you're like, yeah, no, there's more later. I'm like, more? Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, Den is like just inserting himself when they are attacked by the minions of Ard. Ard kidnaps both of them and encases the lady under glass. And, like Snow White. Yeah, like Snow White. And <laughs> tasks Den with stealing the Lochnar from the evil queen who ordered the sacrifice to begin with. We saw her wearing a mask, but, and, she, she, yep. but she had her boobs out. Yeah, so. no, like I said, nobody wears clothes in this movie, and it's not even, like, interesting nudity. Yeah, Den sneaks into the Queen's Palace with a bunch of Ard's guards. <laughs> he is almost immediately caught, but the Queen promises leniency if he has sex with her. And like, like, oh yeah, t- nothing for 18 years and then twice in one day? Meanwhile, the guards are like, again? I know, I was like, this, I'm like, bitch, invest in a vibrator. I'm just like, I'm feeling that guard. That, yeah, that, that guard is more too. me than I am. He's like, again, the horny. Yeah, this movie is very horny. It's ridiculously horny. It's something, <laughs> Sylvan was watching it with us, but he didn't want to do the podcast, yeah. but he's like, I have a hard time believing that grown adult men made this. This is a 14-year-old boy projecting oh, his mind yeah. onto the screen. Yeah, I, I said earlier when we were watching, I was like, I bet plenty of young kids watching this had their first orgasm to this movie. <laughs> and as I mentioned before, the whole fantasy of Superman being like, oh, they think I'm meek and weird and nerdy, but oh, if they only knew. Den sex is, maniac? Yeah, yeah, Den is that, just inflated to its most ridiculous extremes. Yeah, he's real inflated. <laughs> <laughs> the raiding party sneaks off of the Lochmar during the sex scene, and the evil queen is mad at Den, but he manages to escape, and he runs to rescue the woman who is about to be sacrificed by Ard. Uh, Ard and the queen fight over the Lochnar, which I, is one of the funnier bits in this. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, Den is the most overtly comedic one there. Oh, but, yeah, we were laughing. Yeah, yeah watching Anne going, stupid bitch, get, get away from me. It's my Lochnar. My Lochnar. Yeah, and honestly, I, I'm going to go on a slight but relevant tangent. I felt like Ard was very queer coded. Oh, there's no even doubt about it. He's like this tiny little effeminate uh, yeah. boyish guy who talked like, in this I know, Uncle Scar it's voice. Like, yeah, it's like, I know it's the 80s, but like, uh, really? <laughs> Anyways, another lightning storm grows up, and Den throws the chain over, um, you know, the two bad guys. The lightning strikes, and the Lochnar teleports them away, possibly to Den's mother's house, which is not very nice of him. Den decides to resist the power of the Lochnar and rides off into the sunset with the woman. Yeah, Catherine. And he's like, I was like, I can be Den here. He decides to stay so he can be buff, bald, and well hung. We next cut to a space station for the Captain Stern bit. Oh my god. You know, the whole time I was watching this, I was like, it's Zap Bran again. That's all I could think of. As this is based on a series that was created by Bernie Wrightson, another American artist who cut his teeth on Creepy and Eerie. Comic fans know him as the co-creator of Swamp Thing, and he also did all of the drawings for Creepshow. Ooh, interesting. This one is a trial about the crooked, amoral space captain, Lincoln F. Stern. He is being charged with many, many offenses. Oh, yeah. Pretty much any crime you can think of, including a moving violation. Yeah, they, they threw that on the end to be like a, a, a yes and bit. 14 counts of assault and battery, 42 armed robbery counts, 37 rapes, and a moving violation. Yeah, and he had this sequence has so many weird chins. Like, it's Bruce Campbell on steroids, but just in the chin. Oh, Bernie Wrightson said that he wanted Captain Stern to have been Superman, except in a military uniform. Yeah. Give up I, the idea that Captain Stern is a corrupted military figure. Yeah, like I said, he's Zap Brannigan, but an actual scumbag. Yeah, he's far worse than Zap Brannigan. <laughs> Anyways, despite the mountain of evidence against him, Stern pleads not guilty, which offends his lawyer, because his lawyer thinks that the best case scenario is that they bury him in secrets so and no one will violate his tombstone. <laughs> Darren assures his lawyer that he has an angle. See, he has bribed a guy named Hanover Fist, voiced by Squidward, to provide positive witness testimony on his behalf. But before this even began, he found it's like a marble-sized version of the Loch Nahr. And Fist, while he's playing with the Loch Nahr, begins perjuring on Stern's behalf, but begins interrupting himself with various other horrible things that Captain Stern has done, like selling crack to children as a nun or something. Yeah, or a preschool sex ring. Ah! Eventually, Hanover Fist freaks out and turns to this giant Hulk monster, completely trashing the courtroom, wiping away the bailiffs and various other officers who tried to stop him. And yeah, chases. and his pants stay intact. Yeah, just, just like the regular Hulk, thank yeah. God. Because we, we're not going to be able to see a penis the size of a fire hydrant anywhere. <laughs> Anyways, he chases Stern throughout the space station, this very slapsticky sequence, while this little eye robot follows yeah. Stern around and tries to help him out. Fist finally corners Stern, who then decides to give Fist this payoff for uh, covering his escape from the law. Ha uh ha, -huh, it was a scam all along. What did the Lochnar contribute? I don't know. Jack shit. I mean, it's kind of a very loose framing device. Yeah, we'll, we'll be getting into the struggles with how the Lochnar frames these stories later oh, on. Oh, boy. However, after Fist is paid off, Stern, in order to cover his tracks, ejects Fist into space, killing him as he burns up in the atmosphere. And the Lochnar is flying through space as well. Right, the next bit was cut from the film. It was never finished because, well, for reasons we'll be getting into it, called uh, Neverwhere Land. The Lochnar is supposed to land on this planet and... Well, it's in this primordial pre-evolutionary stage and introduces a sequence where it influences the evolution of the planet, building up, you know, human societies, dinosaurs, and then corrupting people. The Jack the Ripper murders, and it ends with the World War. Yeah, you know, that kind of reminds me of a sped-up version of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, a little bit. It also makes me think of animated sequence in a Fantasia parody that I want to do an episode on eventually. But Is that that's... the Italian one? Yes. That one was fun. Yeah, that's a good one. The animatics for this uh, still survive. Uh, it was first set to Pink Floyd's Time as like a VHS bonus feature. 
And the last shot in this would be a B-17 bomber flying off, which sets up our next sequence. Okay, you know, I actually really like the B-17 sequence. I thought it was a cool idea, and I was really disappointed that it just ended. Yeah, it was written by Dan O'Bannon, who I mentioned before. He uh, wrote The Long Tomorrow with Moebius, which is sort of a part of Harry Canyon. And it was first called Gremlins. Uh, it's supposed to be like Gremlins attacking the side of the plane, but that's not where we go from here. It focuses on a World War II B-17 bomber called the Pacific Pearl, and it is enduring a difficult bombing run uh, with many casualties. Now, the co-pilot of the craft goes out to check on the crew, who have all been viciously, brutally killed. And he notices that the tail end of the Lochnar is trailing the plane. It can apparently fly now. The Lochnar rams into the plane and reanimates the dead crewmen as zombies. Yeah, really creepy, like, slimy, Tales from the Crypt zombies. I don't even like zombies, but I I can appreciate when they are used in a different way. Yeah, entrails falling out of them and goo everywhere. Very, very slimy and gross. Mm -hmm. Co-pilot is very quickly killed and... One of the most badass uh, sequences in the movie, I think. Yeah, he falls into, like, the little gun port, and then blood explosion everywhere. Yeah, the pilot, however, is able to parachute away. Unfortunately for him, he lands in an airplane graveyard filled with hundreds of other zombies. And then it just ends. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they they wanted the sequence to be like a more overt nod to the EC comics, and it does definitely have that Tales from the Crypt vibe. Oh, it definitely does. But yeah, we don't learn enough about the characters to have an investment in whether or not they get murdered. And most Tales from the Crypt is like, here, look at this horrible person. And on page seven, he finally gets what he deserves. Yeah. Not here. Yay! Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was interesting, and I wanted it to be longer. Our next bit is completely plotless. It is called So Beautiful and So Dangerous. Oh, my God. Yeah, it is based <laughs> on a 64-page comic of the same title. Pages. Yeah, which was advertised as the first existential science fiction comic story. It was written and drawn by Angus McKee, and it is about a group of deadbeat humans who sort of accidentally fall ass backwards into being the very first ambassadors to the stars after first contact is made with Earth, which, that sounds like you could build a story around that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we don't get that here. No, sure don't. We set the scene with a a person named Dr. Anrak, who was giving a lecture to the Pentagon officials about some worrisome mutations that have been plaguing the country, which some people believe are connected to green lights from space. Yeah, honestly, looking at him, he had a very weirdly shaped head, and I was like, this guy's an alien. I was wrong, but not incredibly wrong. Yeah, Dr. Anrak first tries to downplay the concerns, but then he notices that Gloria, the stenographer, is wearing the Lochnar as a necklace. Yeah, between her giant jugs. This sets him off, and he just leaps over the table and assaults her. At this point, a giant spaceship shaped like a happy face drills into the Pentagon and uh, retrieves Dr. Anrak, but accidentally grabs Gloria, the stenographer, as well. Just show me what you got! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. They both get sucked aboard, and Dr. Anrak is completely shattered. Turns out he's an android who was planted on Earth in order to misdirect people. Uh, Of course. The ship's robot, who is also voiced by John Candy. Yeah, he has, like, the ears of, of Mickey Mouse and the body shape of Bender. He's initially annoyed at the malfunctioning Anrak, but his mood changes when he notices that Gloria is there. He lies and tells Gloria that there's some kind of interference with the ship and she can't leave. But hey, would you you like a drink? And that leads to where we think it's going to. The two dim-witted alien stoner guys who were voiced by Eugene Levy and Harold Ramis. (laughs) They're flying off while Gloria and John Candy, the robot, have robo-sex. Yeah, and and, and as someone who is a huge robot lover, there's you don't get the, the full robot experience or an explanation about how it even works. Because later on, she has to ask him if he's circumcised. So he's apparently, a la Data, he's fully functional, but possibly not anatomically correct. Yeah, I know. If you have sex with someone, you can you should be able to tell if they're circumcised or not. It's... Yeah, I mean, it was well-lit room. <laughs> Anyways, Edsel and Zeke do a humongous amount of space cocaine. Oh my god, space cocaine everywhere. And like one of them has a nose on top of his head. And he's like sucking it up like Mr. Nunu from Teletubbies. <laughs> 
Gloria and John Candy, the horny robot, decide that they're going to get married, but it has to be a Jewish wedding. And uh, Edsel and Z crash the ship in this docking station. And as of them going, ooh, good landing, in like a Cheech and Chong voice. The end. That's the story. Yep, that's it. I mean, it does. It has some like robot human love, and it's not even interesting, which is very disappointing to me, a robot lover. I, I'm not going to get into that. Okay. <laughs> Right, uh, getting back to our framing device, the Lochnar, the reason he's targeting this little girl and telling her these stories is that she has hidden powers that she's unaware of, and he needs to destroy her before she challenges his uh, authority over the multiverse. Yeah, which is why he's going to tell her a bunch of weird stories before he kills her. This sets up our last story called Tarna. This is very loosely based on Moebius's uh, Arzak stories. However, the... Uh, Filmmakers are also heavily influenced by spaghetti westerns, particularly the work of Sergio Leone. In this, the Lochnar is a meteorite again. It crashes into a volcano in a peaceful world. Green lava spits out and mutates a bunch of nearby villagers into an evil army. They attack a city whose elders mentally summon aid from a mythical and possibly extinct warrior race that they have a pact with. Yeah, and I knew that the mysterious warrior was going to be a woman because they greatly avoid using any pronouns when talking about this mysterious warrior. And I'm like, I like leaned over and I'm like, it's, it's going to be a naked lady with big boobs, right? And, and you were like, well, she's not completely naked. <laughs> right, Tarna, the last of her people, obeys the summons. She goes to this hidden temple, swims across this little canal thing, and puts on her warrior uniform, which is like a <laughs> slingshot bikini. Yeah, and like, please, that's not going to protect her for anything. And I don't know, I'm going to go on a slight tangent of I really think that you need to have your lady warriors with a ponytail holder, which is why I love that scene in Birds of Prey where, you know, they pass a hair tie so that you can put her hair back. And honestly, I would not want to be jumping around, you know, with my D-cup boobs in like a teeny tiny bikini bra trying to kill people with a giant sword. It's ridiculous. And A bikini bra with no straps, by the way. Yeah, a bikini bra with no straps. And like, honestly, I'll tell you one thing. You, if you are bigger than a B cup, there is no way that you can do that comfortably without falling out. Yeah, that's our main <laughs> problem with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, Tarna fetches her power sword and leaves back upon her pterodactyl. It's I like love a, the pterodactyl. It's yeah, it's like a pterodactyl with chicken legs and it screeches like a dolphin. Yeah, and has a dolphin tail and it's the only character I got emotionally attached to in this. Like when it got injured, I was like, no, not the pterodactyl. It's her pet. <laughs> when Tarna gets to the city, all of the people there have been brutally murdered and have been for quite some time. However, Tarna is able to chase the culprits to a bar because their uh, riding mouse with the giant bats have a medallion comparable to one that she confiscated from the, uh, from the site. Mm -hmm. Some of the mutants try to assault her, but she quickly kills them, and the barkeep points her, her out to the, to the mutant camp, presumably just to get rid of her. Yeah, like when she, you know, put her fist on the table, I was like, oh, are you going to tip the guy more? for wrecking his bar and leaving like a bunch of corpses in there but no no she just wants information yeah tarna is almost immediately captured oh, yeah this was really funny because <laughs> like when the bad guy was like i was like what did he say he was just like i didn't think it'd be this easy no no, no, no the next power he's like find her and bathe her and then there was a pause and i said and bring her to me and then he went and bring her to me <laughs> yes you guessed the obvious thing have a cookie <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, the leader of the mutant army, uh, after she is stripped and washed, he whips her and yeah. throws her into an open pit, and her whip wounds almost immediately vanish. Yeah, this is very much a, a fantasy. I was like, she's naked, her boobs are out, and she gets whipped. I'm like, yeah, somebody definitely jerking themselves off while making this. Yeah, they're going to kill her pterodactyl buddy, but... No! Yeah, he or she breaks away and manages to rescue Tarna from the pit. However, the pterodactyl is immediately shot in the neck by a spear. I was very upset. Tarna has a face-off with the mutant leader and kills him. Both of them are injured quite a bit, and she rides a pterodactyl and makes a kamikaze run uh, to the volcano that the Lochnar is in. In a last-ditch effort, because the Lochnar is all about gaslighting, he tries to warn her away, saying that there's no way that he can actually destroy her, but she can. She uses her power sword to explode the volcano, and that causes the Lochnar to explode as, as he is threatening the little girl. 
Yeah, but that that's like the one question I have was he told the story and that caused his destruction or, or what? Well, another thing is that uh, the astronaut dad, he has the same S medallion that the bad guys in the Tarna scene have. And like, is that supposed to mean something? Because they never make anything out of that. I don't, I don't know. Uh, and honestly, I know that there's like a grand tradition of, you know, the stoic silent protagonist, but I didn't like that Tarna doesn't talk. She's the only real female lead in this who has any sort of real plot worth besides just being sexy. I mean, she is sexy, but she gets to kick off the bass as R-rated She-Ra. Yeah, we will be getting back to that when we're talking about how the film was made. But yeah, to finish things off, the little girl manages to escape the mansion just before the Loch Nahr explodes. And she notices that the pterodactyl is waiting for her. It's a different pterodactyl. It's purple. Uh, I thought that might have been the lighting, but anyways, she <laughs> she gets on the pterodactyl and, and, and rides off, and while she's doing that, her hair turns silver gray, just like Tarna, because she is the reincarnation of Tarna, and she is the prophesized warrior that will protect good from the forces of evil for the next generation. Yeah, honestly, this story felt very separate from all of the other ones. No, no, it's all connected. The end. Don't think about it anymore. Not to. <laughs> All right, let's get into the production of this film. Uh, like I said before, it was produced by Ivan Reitman, who was fresh off directing Animal House for National Lampoon, and he was directing Stripes while this film was being made. The supervising director was Errol Potterton, who farmed uh, animation duties out to various crews who worked mostly independently of each other. There wasn't really a framework outside of Disney for animated films in the early 1980s, so they just basically approached any like mom-and-pop operation that did like Saturday morning cartoons or breakfast cereals and gave them 10 minutes to work on. It makes sense. The springboard was, as I mentioned before, Moivius's Arzak series. Reitman looked through one of the stories and he just decided that he wanted a whole film with that level of artistry. And a lot of the animators who worked on this film credit Reitman's lack of animation experience with allowing them to do whatever the hell they wanted and exploring their creative boundaries. Because, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, there's a lot in heavy metal that isn't in uh, North American films traditionally, which makes me give this film a lot more points than it probably deserves. I mean, I think it was pretty to watch just aesthetically even if the story was weird a lot of it was made up on the fly. Uh, for example, the Loch Ness framing this device. There were animatics produced for a different one where instead of bringing like the Loch Ness, Grimaldi the astronaut brings the little girl uh, a space carousel, and she would get on like one of the carousel horses and ride around, and the horse would bring her to one of the stories. Which, I, looking at the animatics, it's very interesting looking. It makes even less sense than the Loch Ness bits, but I mean, it, it at least it's something. Yeah, honestly, I like it better because then you don't have to try to pretend that all of the stories are connected if they're all separate. Speaking of the Loch Ness framing device, uh, the filmmakers struggled to define the Loch Ness. They went through a lot of different ideas, the carousel being the one that made it the furthest along. Throughout the whole thing, they kept asking themselves, what does it do again? Uh, what are the rules? Sometimes it melts people and sometimes it doesn't. You know what? It's just a glowing MacGuffin. Accept it. Yeah, sometimes it's a giant meteor, sometimes it's the size of a marble, whatever. The film was initially scheduled for a November 1981 release, but midway through production, the crew were asked to finish it in time for an August release. This led to a hell of a crunch. Oh yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah, a lot of the crews are working 15-hour shifts. Uh, one guy said that his typical day during the making of the film was that he'd get up at 4 in the morning and he'd start working on the film at 5 a.m. and just do it until 10. And then he would break off to do more commercial work just to pay his light bill. And then at 5 p.m. he would sit back down and work in heavy metal until 10 at night. And then he'd like go to some party or something and then sleep for an hour or two and then get up and start it all over again. Jesus Christ, that sounds hellish. This also explains why there are so many animation errors and so much choppiness in this film. I mean, I just chopped it up to the style of the film, so I just kind of ignored it. Yeah, they lean a lot into the style here, but yeah, there is a lot of wonkiness, especially by modern standards. Most of the characters look great until they try to move. Oh, yeah, some of the motion is really odd. I mean, I've heard it was chalking it up to the rotoscope. 
Rotoscoping is often bad-mouthed amongst animation nerds because it is frequently used as a cheat. There are lots of beautiful examples of rotoscoping, the Flesher Superman cartoons, uh, Snow White has a lot of rotoscoping, and I think certain other th uh, modern films like Waking Life use the technique very and, effectively. Uh, Scanner Darkly. Yeah, Scanner Darkly, also by Richard Linklater. Once again, it's often used as a shortcut to make up for a limited budget, famously by Ralph Bakshi in uh, Wizards, which came out in 1977, a few years before this one, and his very awkward Lord of the Rings movie from 1978. Oh yeah, I mean, I've seen bits and pieces of that, and part of it, part of this did remind me a lot of The Hobbit. Oh yeah, the Rankin Bass Hobbit. Yeah, yeah, it sort of has that like 80s adult animation style to it. Yeah. The mansion that explodes at the end, that wasn't animated. That I is the only tell. that was the only part of the film that was live action. They didn't have time to rotoscope it, so they just like blew up the model and used the footage of that. Yeah, you know what? It works, it looks fine. It is what it is. I mean, if you like science fiction, you're very used to looking at models exploding. The more famous examples of the rotoscoping would be uh, the Corvette from the opening sequence that comes out of the space shuttle. They put a real Corvette in a soundstage and just like suspended it and photographed it and had people just trace over it in, a, in the rotoscope thing. It looks cool. I think that the opening sequence is very interesting. Yeah, you, you described it as like an early MTV advertisement. Yeah, which is, that's you know, what it made me think of. Yeah, most of those are rotoscope too, so I can sort of get it. The B-17 bomber was a 10-foot long model that was shot in high contrast lighting and then the animators worked over it. For the Tarna bits, they hired a Canadian model named Carol uh, Devian to pose as Tarna, particularly for the dressing sequence where, you know, she swims through the canal and slowly, alluringly puts on her various uh, bikini tops and her one glove. Yeah, and her little butt crack underwear. Yeah. The scene was not in the script, but they thought it would be, like, interesting aesthetically new thing to add to the film the director grabbed like a stack of playboys and then just shot the the model and various poses that he saw from playboy and yeah when you saw the notes and you're like yeah based on a stack of playboys that tracks i was like that does not surprise me in the slightest a uh, multiplane camera was used for uh, the sequence where Tarna is flying on her uh, pterodactyl, like a minute-long sequence where you see that, that, really that expansive vista. It is very pretty. But the thing with the multiplane camera is that you're dealing with a minimum of uh, three different reference points, and every time you go from one frame to the next, you have to adjust everything because this predates computer technology where you could do that animation that way. So, you know, one guy would just painstakingly shift everything, and if he makes a mistake, he has to start over at the beginning, and I'm oh, sure that was a big old man. pain in the ass. That is a pain in the ass. <laughs> Yeah, overall, the crew worked with a sense of uh, irony in the humor. Like I said, uh, Heavy Metal was a National Lampoon publication, so a lot of that wry, sort of disrespectful to authority, but we're baby boomers entering our 30s, so we're becoming the authority. Snarkiness is in there, particularly in the den bit. The animators really wanted each of the vignettes to be tonally and aesthetically distinct from each other. They don't quite get it, but it's there. They say, like, flat out that they wanted to play into adolescent power fantasies. They they wanted to appeal to sexually frustrated 15-year-old nerds. Who are probably boys. Yep. Some of them do strain to try to frame Tarna as a female power fantasy figure, but that doesn't really work out. She's still super male-gazy, and as you said, she doesn't have yeah, any dialogue. she doesn't have any dialogue. She's a sexy lamp given some motion. Yeah, honestly, I think when it comes to some of the best female power fantasies, Furiosa in uh, Mad Max Fury Road, that it, I'm sure she was made by a man, but that is a power fantasy character for women. We don't want to be Tarno, we want to be Furiosa. Well, I mean, Furiosa isn't punching volcano zombies with her giant boobs. Uh, Furiosa is punching the patriarchy. Yeah, and screaming, and she's bald, and it's awesome, and she's grimy. Good. Let's get into the cast for this. Uh, Ivan Reitman called in a lot of favors from his friends from uh, SCTV. Yeah, and... I was very surprised to look at the cast list for this. I was like, John Candy? Squidward? 
Yeah, and a lot of people in his prior films, like I said, he's making Stripes at the exact same time, and John Candy is in Stripes. And whenever shooting had wrapped for the day on Stripes, Reitman would just pull John Candy into the booth, and he would just toss off dialogue as, like, Den of the horny robot with the random death sergeant in the, in the Harry <laughs> Canyon bit. Yeah, interestingly enough, Eugene Levy is in this. Most of the people my age think of Eugene Levy as the dad from American Pie, so it is a little odd to hear his voice coming out of Captain Stern's mouth. <laughs> and he's one of the coke aliens. Yeah, of course he is. I mean, I would want to play one of the coke aliens. John Vernon, who is the dean from uh, Animal House, he's the, he's the prosecutor, and is like, oh, I know that voice. I've never seen Animal House all the way through, so um, I was recognizing different voices, like John Candy and Roger Bumpus. Yeah, Roger Bumpus as Hanover Fist. Like I said, he's most famous for being Squidward, but even at this early stage in his career, he had a type. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's a really great video of just the cast of SpongeBob doing their vocal warm-ups to get into character, and Roger Bumpus is one for Squidward, he goes, Ha, 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 Spongebob! <laughs> it's a skeletor. Yeah, I mean, I can't do it. My voice isn't deep enough. <laughs> One of the more interesting and last-minute castings was Percy Rodriguez, who was the Lochnar. He was brought on to do the trailer narration for Heavy Metal. He does do some acting and voice work throughout his career, but he's mostly doing trailer announcements. He did Jaws, The Exorcist, Alien, Videodrome, Children of the Corn, Adam's Family, Lots of stuff. I mean, he has the voice for it. Yeah, he made the Lochnar sound relatively creepy. He did the best he could with the Lochnar. I, I do like his tone in that. He's not credited in this, which is kind of bullshit. I'm not sure why. Maybe he, some union I don't thing. Know, maybe he, yeah, maybe he didn't want to be credited. The one thing that almost everybody uh, praises unequivocally about this film is the music. Oh, yeah, I leaned over and I was like, the music is too good for this movie. Now let's start off with the score. It was composed by uh, Elmer Bernstein, who's a Hollywood lifer. He has 150 credits to his name. This guy is old school. His career took a hit because he wouldn't name names to McCarthy. That's how early he got started Well, you know what? Good for him. He's a real comrade. He had a nice soundtrack for this movie. <laughs> yeah, during the den sequence, like John Candy looks down at the sacrificial altar. And he's like, this is something out of the Ten Commandments, which I assume is a reference because Bernstein scored it. Why not? Yeah, some of his other most noteworthy credits are To Kill a Mockingbird, The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, lots of movies your dad likes, basically. Hey, you know what? I really like The Great Escape. He did Animal House, and uh, Ivan Reitman liked him so much that after this, he also used him on Ghostbusters. Neat! At the same time as he's working on this, Bernstein has also wrote the music for An American Werewolf in London, and there is a lot of crossover between how the, those films sound once you know to pay attention to it. There's a great deal of airy soaring elements of this, and especially during the den and the Tarna sequences, it comes off like a biblical epic. Yeah, I was like, wow, I feel like I'm in, you know, an adventure serial right now. Yeah, it's performed by the Royal Philharmonic with uh, very gorgeous choir vocals by the London Voices. However, uh, the most noteworthy thing about the score in terms of Bernstein's thing is that he uses an obscure instrument called the Onde Martineau, which is a very early electronic keyboard device. Nice! Yeah, it is... It is basically played by, you, you put your finger in this ring that is suspended on a wire and just run it back and forth oh, while yeah, you play I've diodes. Seen one of those. Yeah, it's sort of like a theremin. This is the first time that Bernstein had used the uh, instrument, and he kind of fell in love with it. And, like the rest of his career, it's very prominent in it. It's all over Ghostbusters. Yeah, I'm going to pay attention to that next time I watch Ghostbusters. It's particularly prominent in uh, Tarna's theme, which is a very nice piece of music. This is apparently a leftover from something he scored called Saturn 3, which I looked it up briefly and it like swept the Razzies that year, so I'm guessing it's not very good. <laughs> oh, Razzies. But if you're thinking about heavy metal as a um, musical thing... You are probably thinking about the soundtrack stuff, which is fairly heavy metal. It features Black Sabbath, the Ronnie James Dio incarnation of it, Trust, Nazareth, Cheap Trick, Grand Funk Railroad, Journey, because of course Journey's in this, and well-regarded heavy metal institutions Devo and Stevie Nicks. You know what? Why not? It's Devo. It's Stevie Nicks. Who wants them in this movie, so just put them in there. 
Blue Oyster Cult were among the number of people who wrote original compositions for the film. It was called Vengeance the Pack, but it was rejected by the filmmakers because the lyrics capsulized Tarna's entire story, and it would kind of be awkward to have, like, the soundtrack narrate the movie while it's happening. So instead, Veteran of Psychic Wars was used. Both of the songs are on Blue Oyster Cult's album, uh, Fire of Unknown Origin. Also in the Tarna sequence, Devo are playing Through Being Cool, and you go into the bar, and like the band members are like alien mutant versions of Devo. It's, it, it's a nice touch. Oh, that's who they were supposed to be? Okay, that's cool. Through Being Cool is it, it's one of my favorite Devo songs. Uh, a lot of people say that Devo fell off, like, uh, when they got, you know, more overtly new wavy synth pop. But, uh, I like them. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that album's great. Shut up. <laughs> now, the theme song to the film is called uh, Heavy Metal Taking a Ride by Don Felder of the Eagles. It uh, peaked at 43 on the Hot 100. Another song that is very closely associated with this is also called Heavy Metal by Sammy Hagar. I'm not really a Sammy Hagar guy. I, I listen exclusively to David Lee Roth era Van Halen, but this song kicks ass. Yeah, the soundtrack was fun. You know, it, it kind of did remind me a little bit of listening to the, the 84 Metropolis, with, you know, the cool soundtrack of the movie that may or may not really deserve that level of soundtrack. <laughs> if you're into like late 70s dad rock this is your jam look it up on spotify the album itself peaked at 12 and that's not shabby yeah it's not shabby at all as for the film's reception it got very mixed reviews you don't say most of the people criticized it for its rampant sexism how it romanticizes its gore this is a very bloody film and yeah it, it is honestly pretty sexist just because of all of the boobs and a lack of actual substantial female characters but you know i like i said earlier i don't mind the idea of you know there being boobs in a movie i'm gonna briefly just talk about an anime for a hot second but in kill and kill after a certain point everyone is naked the men and women folks Everybody is naked in it, and it's all treated the same way. It's nice. It's very refreshing, especially in an anime. All the men are wearing skimpy bikinis because you can't trust clothes. I mean, even when I was, like, 15 or 16 and saw this film for the first time, I was like, boobs don't do that. Yeah, like, no. And then, you know, watching some of the behind-the-scenes stuff for this film, this sort of transpose the models uh, for the rotoscoping on top of the final animation, and most of the models are fairly busty, but you still see this cavernous chasm between their actual boobs and the boobs you see in the, in yeah, and, the movie. And you know what? If you don't know someone who has very large breasts, they give you back problems. All of the women in this movie should be like slightly hunched with back pain for having too many boobs. The film was also criticized for being like a thinly veiled excuse for people to get high and go to the movies. Yeah, I think right when like the opening sequence was happening, I was like, wow, this would be a terrible movie to get high to. <laughs> Now, the people who like the movie considered all of the nudity and violence and the trippiness to be good things. Uh, uh, they also praised the uh, the music, which we just talked about. Yeah, it's yes, good. pretty good. It's good. And how the animation is very ambitious and colorful. Yeah, I, I think so. I yeah. think the animation mostly fun. One thing about it is that in terms of criticisms of the present day, everyone talks about how it is very firmly in Moebius' shadow. I'm assuming you're not familiar with his work. No, I'm not. But yeah, both the uh, Harry Canyon and the Tarna bits are based upon his illustrative style, which emphasizes heavily detailed and panoramic backgrounds with minimal little uh, hatching. Uh, they, they copy his hatching technique to a T, which I picked up as soon as I was familiar with his work. Yeah, but you're, you're the comics historian. I mean, I thought it did remind me of Robert Crumb and Der Factor, those comics artists. Your comics artist artwork. <laughs> And also, Moebius is fond this sort of very saturated color that almost has an expressionistic and sometimes fauvist streak to it, which is all over this film. The, the, the colors are very vibrant and they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. While they did get Bernie Wrightson and Richard Corbett on board, the filmmakers couldn't get Moebius to sign anything over. Oh. So yeah, the Harry Canyon stuff steals a lot of his visuals, but none of the story. And Tarna has nothing to do with Arzak, aside from looking like it takes place in a very similar world. Alright. Yeah, and I'm not sure what Morbius thought of it. I couldn't find him commenting on it one way or the other, because 
Once again, he worked in Hollywood. He was not only involved in The Fifth Element and Alien, but he also worked on Tron. He contributed to The Abyss. He did concept art for uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's failed production of Dune, which I kind of wish that movie existed, but that's that's for another podcast. I don't know. For me watching this, it kind of reminded me a lot of The Animatrix. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, I bet the Wachowskis are big heavy metal readers. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I personally really like the Animatrix, and I think that it doesn't get as much respect as it deserves. It is vastly superior to both of the Matrix sequels, and I'll have to see what happens with the fourth. Crossing my fingers that, you know, it's good. I have faith in, you know, Lily and Lana Wachowski to do a good job. Yeah, the movie was a modest box office success, doubled its production budget, and yeah. it, it became a, a staple of midnight screenings across the country. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, because <laughs> you know, if you're sick of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you can, go, <laughs> you, know, you can go down to your local art house theater and see like a cheapo midnight screening of, of heavy metal, and there'll be people passing around substances if you wish to indulge. Yeah, I can I can totally buy that. I mean, I went to a midnight screening of The Room completely drunk. I mean, I didn't, like, plan to do it, but I was real. I drank way too much beer and then nearly fell asleep in the movie theater. You know, one of the reasons that this weird-ass movie was successful at the midnight screenings, besides it being a weird-ass cult movie, was that it didn't get a home video release for a long time. The music rights were not cleared for a home video release. So for the next, oh, 15 years or so, it basically was in the nebulous corners of the pop culture realm. When did it come out on DVD? 1997. In 1992, uh, Heavy Metal's publishing rights were bought by Kevin Eastman, best known for creating the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He decided that the film needed to be back on the market, so he cleared the issues, and the film was released in 1996 on home video. Uh, got a very brief theatrical release just to remind people that it existed, and it eventually sold a million copies. That, that's not shabby at all. Let's talk about this film's legacy, because it has a long one. You I'm know. surprised that I've never heard of it. Yeah, I mean, it's not, like, the most prominent thing in the world, but it has tentacles. Yeah, like, I, of all the movies that we've watched for this podcast that I hadn't seen, when it's your turn to pick... Like, I'd heard of Run, Lola, Run. I had heard, I obviously had heard of Airplane, Citizen Kane, Metropolis. Its immediate sequel is called Heavy Metal 2000, released in the same year. It's based on a graphic novel called The Melting Pot by uh, Kevin Eastman, uh, his frequent collaborator Simon Bisley, and uh, Eric Talbot, who does a lot of Ninja Turtles work. He's retired to do uh, Ninja Turtle tattoos now. Are any of the sequels actually good? Oh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> Voice actors include Michael Ironside, Billy Idol, and uh, Eastman's w uh, wife at the time, Julie Strain, best known as a B-movie scream queen, although uh, she was also the penthouse pet of 1992. My birth year! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a box office failure, uh, critically panned, everyone thought it was a piece of shit. I think it's a very bad movie. Oh. It got a video game sequel called Heavy Metal F.A. KK2, which is a third-person shooter. The soundtrack of this is very reflective of the 80s one. It includes a bunch of hard rock acts who were popular at the time. Uh, Monster Magnet, Queens of the Stone Age, Pantera, System of a Down, Machine Head. Interestingly, a lot of new metal on it, but they, I guess they couldn't get Corn or Papa Roach, so they had to settle for Coal Chamber. And also Insane Clown Posse is on this. Aww, that's interesting. <laughs> The next thing that came up is that it is famously referenced in a South Park episode, which for a lot of people was their first exposure to the existence of this franchise. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit too young to have been a serious early South Park watcher. This is well into the show's run. Uh, it, okay. it, 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 the title of the episode is Major Boobage, because of course it is. <laughs> It first aired on March 26, 2008. The general plot line surrounds this fad amongst the kids of South Park where they get high by exposing themselves to concentrated cat urine. And when Kenny gets high off cat piss, it transports him to heavy metal world. <laughs> is he suddenly big and has a large Johnson? Uh, no, he is still Kenny, but everything else is heavy metal, <laughs> except there's even more boobs. Kenny. Yeah, there, there's like a topless Tarna figure, and she's riding with Kenny on the pterodactyl. He's going, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I 
Does he die? <laughs> no, but he, he just he just can't stop getting wrecked because this universe is cool and he wants to keep going back to it. Aww. <laughs> yeah, most episodes of South Park take a week to animate so they can do, you know, riff from the headline stuff. However, mm-hmm. uh, it took them eight weeks to do this because for the heavy metal sequences, they wanted to rotoscope it so it would look like the film. Okay, now I have to watch that episode, and I've always been very fond of Kenny, so... <laughs> Now, the Tarna figure is played by the porn star Elisa Daniels. She posed for all the rotoscoping. All right, cool. Good for her. Yeah, it's a a fan favorite episode. They use three songs from the 1981 soundtrack, all pretty hilariously. I have mixed (laughs) feelings about South Park, especially these days. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm still pretty fond of that one. Now, the original version of Heavy Metal, uh, uh, Metal Horon, was relaunched in 2002 and finished in 2004, headed by Alejandro Jodorowsky. That wanted a framing device of this screaming sentient asteroid that would fly by various planets and influence the trajectory of the story. This was adapted into a live-action show called Metal Horon Chronicles, which was produced by France and Belgium, but was still English language. It uh, ran from 2012 to 14. Um, Have you seen any clips from it? A few. Uh, 12 episodes across two seasons. It was a sci-fi original, so I'm sure you already know what it looks like. Yeah, honestly, there are so many times where, like, me and my mom and my sister, we would just get sucked into a sci-fi original, and we'd always be disappointed that we watched all of it, and then my mom would be like, never again, we're never watching a sci-fi original ever again, and then we immediately watch another one. (laughs) Yeah, it got crappy reception and very bad ratings. People who appeared in the various episodes included Rutger Hauer, Scott Adkins, and uh, Black Dynamite himself, Michael J. White. Yeah! Anyways, as soon as Heavy Metal 2000 wrapped up, there was some kind of production hell going on with uh, making another one at some point. Most notably, in 2008, David Fincher of Seven and Fight Club fame announced that he was going to make an anthology film with various sequences directed by Kevin Eastman again, Zack Snyder, Guillermo del Toro, hey! uh, Gore Verbinski, and apparently James Cameron wanted to do one, and Jack Black was attached as a member of Tenacious D. Okay, you know what? Jack Black is always fun to watch. Uh, yeah, it's it going to have like a $50 million budget, and it, it sounds like a fun idea. I, I bet it would have been an interesting cult movie if they ever made the damn thing. But it was stalled due to nobody thought that American audiences would be able to handle the risque content that is associated with the heavy metal brand. However, uh, Robert Rodriguez bought the rights to heavy metal as a film in 2011. Uh, he kept trying to get the film made, but ran into the same roadblocks and decided, screw it, let's turn it into a TV show around 2014. Finally, his take on it, which he retitled Love, Death, and Robots, premiered on Netflix oh, in 2019. that's what it is! Yes, okay. Lo- Love, Death, and Robots is a modernized version of heavy metal, which makes a lot of sense to you, I'm assuming. Yeah, it does, because pretty much everyone I knew told me not to watch it because it was really sexist. I haven't seen too much of it, but yeah, most people are like, this would be more interesting if they didn't insist on having so much gore and pointless nudity, which, yeah, that sounds like heavy metal. Yeah, but you know what? I like I have nothing against gore and pointless nudity. Like, I write stuff with gore and nudity, but, I, you know, I, I want it to be used well. You know, make it art. I also think it would be interesting, like, to put it from another person's perspective, I'd be interested in seeing something like this, which is very trashy and lowbrow and appealing to the lowest common denominator of your genitals from somebody who is not me. If somebody decided that they were going to make a queer, black, transgender version of heavy metal, I'd be into it. Oh my god, yeah. We need to have variety of voices and, uh, you know, creators from all backgrounds because... The heavy metal, all of the nudity and the treatment of the women, and there are really no actual characters of color in this either. There's no black people in heavy metal. So it'd be interesting to see somebody else do this. All right, before we wrap things up, uh, just go over the themes again. I think we touched upon uh, adolescent escapism in all the ways that I wanted to. Talked about the film's horniness and its weird boobs and its its psychedelic things. Oh, yeah. One thing... 
I, I kept picking up from making up featurettes besides them going out of their way to avoid talking about Moebius, even when they're directly referencing Arzak, which I thought was pretty funny, is uh, that they felt that the film was about freedom. Not only that these animators who were stuck doing, like, you know, Hanna-Barbera stuff finally got to draw the stuff that they actually wanted to. A lot of people in commentaries I came across that is like, yeah, if you leave artists alone long enough, they're going to start just drawing boobs. And that tracks, I'm under the impression the very first thing a human drew was some Paleolithic person drawing boobs in the sand with a stick. I mean, you have the hot and top Venus. Uh, you know, going back to not only is, uh, I mean, Disney is fairly constrained, but one anecdote I came across is that, I mean, while you're working for Disney, everything you draw on or off the clock belongs to Disney. Ugh, I'm sorry, so, Disney is evil. So there's this big stack in the back of Disney's animation offices of the various porn that all of the animators have drawn over the years <laughs> because they were bored and horny and just like every Disney character is doing unspeakable <laughs> things to each other well, there. And I kind of want to see that stack. I mean, you know what? Me too. I mean, I'd be, I would be mildly curious to see what some of that stuff is. Rule 34, there, there's porn of it. So Heavy Metal is allowing the Disney porn stack to just come out into the world and show itself. <laughs> but another thing they said is that one guy expressed that he thought that Heavy Metal was the last gasp of the counterculture as the Reagan era began, which is really self-important of him to say. Yeah, I mean, you know, can we can we also say uh, Ronald Reagan, the anniversary of his death was a few days ago, down with Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> breaking unions, letting people with AIDS die, speaking to the choir here. Hanging out with Margaret Thatcher, ugh. And, of course, immediately after that, they're like, well, heavy metal probably couldn't work today because it's a lot more politically correct because, you know, they're, they're boomers. That's that's how they think. I, if somebody else who was not a straight white man wanted to make heavy metal and make it a little bit more genuinely diverse and interesting and make it queer. Or at least throw some more dick in it. Yeah, throw some more dick in it. I would be interested to see what it was. And on a completely unrelated note, when you said that today's movie was going to be heavy metal for some reason i thought heavy metal was that shaquille o'neal superhero movie no that's steel yeah that's yeah i know i was like oh okay i I was like i don't know why ryan wants to watch a movie where shaquille o'neal is a superhero but oh no the shaquille o'neal movie i'm doing for this podcast is kazam (laughs) i I mean i made ryan watch some things he hated so i guess you know i owe him one to watch something <laughs> that i'll hate okay i figured this episode is going to run pretty long because yeah. of the anthology and i went uh-huh. to each sequence but before we finally finish things off are there is there anything about heavy metal that we haven't talked about that you would like to bring up i don't know i mean honestly i am surprised they didn't do the southbound thing is which is a war anthology movie where each segment segues into the other like they're minimally connected like a character who was the lead in one story is the mutilated corpse in the net uh yeah i'm not sure why they even had a a framing device they could have just rammed them into each other who cares yeah i mean there's also the really good anthology film uh xx which is a female-directed horror anthology, including a story that is written by St. Vincent herself. The framing device is just this little stop-motion animated sequence. As you can probably guess, this will not be the last anthology film we talk on the show. Oh, no! Absolutely not. (laughs) And with that, we will bid you good night. See you next time. Bye!